The scripture reading for our text today comes from Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, if you have your copy of God's word and want to turn with us there, you may feel free to do so. So verses 13 through 16, hear now the inerrant, internal, and sufficient word of God. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we, we do ask now that you would oversee the preaching of your word, that there would be nothing that comes across in these next handfuls of minutes but your word. And whatever your servant, a flawed and sinful preacher says contrary to your word, may it not stick or be carried out of here in any way. May only your word come across. May your truth be conveyed and may your son be glorified above all things. We ask this in his name, amen. Well, we continue to look at the second half of the book of Ephesians, which is the practical or the application section of the book. And we've gotten through a couple of different topics, topics of unity that keeps coming back around. And we saw again in our text this morning, talking uh, topics about spiritual gifting, about each individual Christian having a gift from the Holy Spirit and then what that's the purpose for. We saw last week that, that pastors and teachers are to be about the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry, not doing it all themselves, but equipping the saints, Christians, everyday Christians for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we pick it up there at the end of verse 12 in the middle of the sentence in verse 13. But for us to lay a little bit of groundwork before we move too much further, if you could think about among many different descriptors, different descriptors of just modern evangelical churches, if you were gonna throw out two that described them just in a big general swath, it could be a lot of them. But a couple of them may be this, that you can describe most churches as being feminine and youthful. Well, why is that? Well, you, you take cues from the culture and you're trying to imitate that and trying to look like the culture or not be offensive to the culture. And why? Well, masculinity is toxic and older means obsolete and useless. So just think about that. Like enter any Christian, there's not a the whole lot of Christian bookstores left as just like brick and mortar stores. But if you go into one of them, who is the obvious target demographic? Women and children, every single time. Now that's not a problem necessarily, but it is an issue that masculinity and maturity are entirely excluded. Yet the New Testament speaks about the opposite of that to the churches, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And the Bible is presuming we know what a man is. And secondly, what they act like. 
And then you play Ephesians, what we just read, verse four or chapter four, verse 15. We are to grow up, mature, become older, all aspects into him. Now, before emails flood my inbox, there are biblical concepts of youth and femininity for the church. Matthew 18, verse three, Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, but we, Paul saying himself and in his compadres, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. However, our text today, what we're looking at is, is maturity. We tackle the concept of perpetual spiritual adolescence. It's become expected, not, not just common, but expected to gear the entire culture of the church towards youthfulness. Think about the songs, shallow, silly lyrics, simple, trivial, or simplistic rather, trivial sermons, me-centeredness in everything. Everything is about the consumer, about the person. And, and isn't that what, what a child is usually about? What's for me? What's for me? What's for me? What, when's kids day? Every Father's Day and every Mother's Day, right? me-centeredness and everything. And you gotta have the newest technology for everything. If you don't, then you're just pathetic. So whatever the newest thing is, you gotta have it, new tech. And never challenging anyone, endlessly affirming everyone. It's a kind of a, uh, an everything is youth group ethos. It's, th- it's things like, well, you think the music is too loud? Well, then just get earplugs or Worship isn't just for God. God's okay if you talk about yourself. Or I don't know anything about this. I just Google it and you can too. Those are all things I've heard live and in person from pulpits, all of those things. Now, this is symptomatic of the true issue, which is just spiritual immaturity. And even worse, an intentional spiritual immaturity. We are trying to stay immature. And this is a problem. First Corinthians 3, one through two, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. Paul is clearly saying that immaturity is an unacceptable status to stay in as an individual and as a congregation. Therefore, Christ, we saw in verse 12 of Ephesians 4, has given pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints to feed and shepherd the church to maturity, all powered by the Holy Spirit. Maturity is the undoubted theme of this text. Verse 13 says mature man. Verse 14 says no longer to be children. Verse 15, we are to grow up. Verse 16, growth and building up of the church. So whatever it means to be mature in Christ, we should want to be that because we're commanded four times in four verses to do that. And because what lasting appeal does immaturity have in any sector of your life? Parents, do you want your kids to be 45 and living in your spare bedroom? Parents who have little babies right now, do you want them to stay not sleeping through the night? Is that endearing to you? And just, oh, look how cute it is. I never sleep. This is like torture and war. Nobody wants that. Husbands, do you want your wives to stay like chattering little junior high girls? Wives, do you want your husbands to stay like immature boys, just consumed with silliness and trivialities? No, 
We press on to maturity. Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Churches must have a track for maturity. You know, you've heard me say it before, but a pastor that I connected with a couple of years ago was asked about his church by a visitor. He's like, you guys don't do like the smoke and the laser, all that stuff. And you know, all these programs and things. And he just looked at him and said, yeah, that's, that's correct. We do church for grownups. And Jim Boyce, great pastor who died in the year 2000, he said, God's chief purpose for the church is that it might become full grown and that each of its members might contribute to that maturity by becoming spiritual adults. So that's our text, is spiritual maturity. Verse 13, we're going to see the purpose of gifting. The purpose of gifting is unified maturity in the church. Until we attain, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, we're picking it up mid-sentence. We mentioned that earlier, that pastor teachers are to equip the saints to do the work of the service or work of the ministry of the church to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to a level of maturity. There's a purpose for that effort that pastor teachers pouring into the church. The goal is to the equipping work and that goal is twofold, unity and maturity. The unity of the faith is what it says. This is something to be worked for and worked towards. The unity of the faith, not your saving faith, but the Bible sometimes in the New Testament uses the faith to uh, uh, consume all of Christian doctrine, the Christian faith itself, all that's true of the Bible. And the thing about it is that churches don't drift towards unity. You, anything good, you don't drift towards that. You don't just naturally drift towards that. You don't drift towards health, even just as, a, as your biological body. You strive towards that. You fight towards that. You work towards that. Anything good and lasting is worked towards. So it starts with pastor teachers in verse 12 and everyone using their gifts in the, in the verses also previous individually. That brings unity. Remember we talked about the orchestra, that we're not the Beijing Olympics opening up, everybody playing the exact same rhythm with the exact same instrument, exact same clothing, exact same everything. No, no, we're all playing the same music, but we have different sounding instruments and we come in at different points of the piece. But we are after the unity of the faith. Do you see that in verse 13? The faith. Our unity is to be around the true Christian faith. Jude, Jesus's half brother, wrote his tiny little epistle about this. In verse three, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, meaning, guys, all I wanted to do was talk about my half-brother, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all I wanted to do was talk about that, the gospel, salvation. But I couldn't because I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend, meaning that you fight earnestly for the faith, the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints." the faith once for all handed down, not created, not plural, once for all, the Christianity divine by scripture. This, this is why a confession of faith that's robust and full like the 1689 is so helpful. It's a summary of the faith handed down once for all to the saints. And knowing the faith leads to, the verse goes on to maturity. Lead it 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. Do you remember back in chapter two when Peter or when Paul was talking about uh, Jews and Gentiles coming together as one new man? The church is like one new man. Well, now he's going and saying that man needs to grow up, become a mature man. See, we aren't supposed to have just a, a meager knowledge of Christ. That's what it says in verse 13, that the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man. This maturity comes from a knowledge of Christ and that's not supposed to be meager or like, well, I just got like a working knowledge of the son. It's passable. It's, you know, it gets me there. It's elementary, but it's basic. It's there. No, a full knowledge, it says, of the son, a full knowledge. So we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask you, do you? have a full knowledge of Christ? Are you pushing towards a full knowledge of Christ? If you got sat down in a room with a pen and a pad of paper, how long would it take you to write down everything you know to be true about your savior, Jesus Christ? How many pieces of paper would you need? This is what Paul is getting after. Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? That's what matters above all things. That's what determines eternity. Who do you say that I am? Every false religion says that Jesus is something. And most of them are pretty positive about Jesus. He's a great guy, good teacher, great model. But Satan doesn't even deny the existence and the reality of Jesus. And he could sit down and write a whole lot on a pad of paper. Maturity, therefore, for all of us begins with the knowledge of the Son of God, according to verse 13. And many fail to become a mature man because they cease knowing Christ. You just don't care. Many leave the faith, or what's the, the, new, the new hip word for apostasy is just deconstruction. You deconstruct your faith. That's just a new word for apostasy because they never knew Christ. A couple of months ago, me and a few brothers from church were at Whataburger for breakfast. Whataburger is where all good things happen. That's where the gospel goes. It's just there. And we were there and we're talking about things of the scriptures and it's going round and round. And the guy sits down next to us and he uh, overhears us. And he just kind of slides down. It's one of those parts of Whataburger where it's like a long booth on one side and you got tables and chairs on the other side. He just kind of slides down the booth this guy, he's, he's about my size, looked to be about my age, maybe a little bit older and uh, had long dreads. And he just comes over and says, man, I hear you guys talking about uh, like church stuff and the Bible. And, and then he just jumps into the conversation. But he had left the faith. He says, I used to be in the church. I'm not anymore. Grew up up north. And, and he goes, you know what happened? I was, you know, I got older and I started looking around and then I, it, it dawned on me. I was talking to some other people. I was like, you know what? Jesus wasn't white. He had dark skin. And, and then he was like, he goes and asks his pastor. He asked his mom, Jesus couldn't have been white, the one that's up on the walls because of where he lived and the time period and all that stuff. And they were like, well, don't worry about it. They didn't answer it. They didn't talk to him about it. So he was like, you don't have answers for who Jesus is, I'm out. And then he was stunned when I said, well, I don't even think it was right for them to have pictures of Jesus because is he not God? And doesn't the second commandment say, don't make pictures of God? So the, he was like, oh, and I was like, yeah, I bet he was a lot more like you looking than me looking as far as skin tone goes. And he was just, oh, I mean, think about it. If, if, that, if that young man had gotten connected with somebody who just knew Christ decades ago, he wouldn't be where he is now. 
just knowing who Jesus is, all he needed was just a teacher and loving brothers, a church. Maturity begins with the person and work of Christ and knowing who he is. And then what it does is it brings confident clarity. Look at verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. See, spiritual maturity does something. It's not just some kind of ethereal, ambiguous idea. It does something for us. It has a result that we can experience, not in fullness, but a result that we can experience on this side of heaven. Otherwise, verse 14 is pointless. That there will be a maturity and it's not a perfect maturity, but we can even look at people uh, uh, physiologically and say, oh yeah, they've matured. Obviously they're not done. Their body's still changing and growing and all of that kind of thing and, and moving in certain ways. But we can say a point of maturity has been reached. That's what Paul's after in this verse. Spiritual maturity can be experienced here and now. Its results can be seen because all work, according to Proverbs 14.23, has profit. All labor, there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. That's true spiritually as well. Laboring and maturing with the context, within the context of the local church does produce results. God intends for his children to grow up, to get older. He empowers it and he progresses it. Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will mature it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, that maturity is commanded, verse 14. We are no longer to be, do not be children. Now, children are wonderful. There's kids in this room right now. We love you guys. Kids are awesome, but... You have your limitations, kids, right? You know that? Like if somebody asked you to pay taxes, would you know how to do that? Or kids, just think about this. If you've, you know a three-year-old, there's some three-year-olds in here. Some of them are asleep on the front row. <laughs> what if a three-year-old, kids, was the president of the United States? Would that be good or bad? That would be pretty bad, actually, right? There's a difference between childlike and childish, See, and that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 14, no longer to be childish. There's a difference between that. What we do sometimes uh, is hide behind that. Well, I'm just faith like a child, just faith like a child as an excuse to ever grow up or do anything or know anything or mature in any way. There, I, when I was in seminary, I was pastoring the small rural country church. And this guy, anytime we talked about anything in the Bible, even if I wasn't even there, he was just like, oh, faith like a child, just faith like a child. Didn't want to engage, didn't want to know, didn't want to do anything. And that's actually just a pursuit of childishness, not childlikeness. See, childlike is complete trust. That's what Jesus is talking about, complete trust. A kid just grabs the hand of the adult and walks into the street. I have no idea what cars are, don't know anything, but I know I'm safe with this one. That complete trust, a total reliance. If you don't wake up in the morning to feed your kids, what happens to them? they starve and it becomes a thunderdome and the Lord of the flies, like you got to feed them. They can't do it, right? Entire submission is childlike. Childish is living like Toys R Us. I don't want to grow up. I want to be a kid forever. Kids, there used to be a store called Toys R Us. Amazon killed it, but you could go in there, imagine a Walmart that's nothing but toys. That's what it was. 
And the theme was just be a kid forever, kind of like Peter Pan. But we all know that Peter Pan's a huge lie. No little boy can defeat a grown-up with a much bigger sword. That can't happen. It's not real. The refusal to mature, that's childish. First Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. That's what maturity is supposed to be about on the Christian life. It is indeed best for us to mature, but it is also a command. We must not remain spiritual adolescents because one thing we know about children is they are vulnerable, right? We all teach our kids, don't talk to this person, don't go to these places, understand who strangers are. You, I'm not letting you go to that thing because I don't know those people. I don't know those parents, I don't know that scenario vulnerability. But maturity, you don't worry about your 26-year-old son in the same way you worry about your six-year-old son. Maturity brings ability to discern. Look at verse 14. We're no longer be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. There's always a relentless onslaught of niche or strange or aberrant or even heretical doctrine just blowing into churches, always, always. And they'll be on those different levels, but maturity to discern doctrine is what Paul is saying. Doctrine just means the teaching, the truth. So you got niche things that come through and people saying, if you aren't breastfeeding your kids and doing natural birth, then you might as well just send them to hell now because that's evil, that's against the scripture or the whole full quiver movement that came through the church a couple of decades ago. Then you get strange doctrines where people are fixated on numbers. The number three always means this and 27 divided by three equals this. And then that's how many disciples there were on the boat. Strange. And then you get into like prophecy speculations. Oh no, that person is definitely this thing in prophecy because I know he was wearing a red tie at one time and green shoes and that's it. That's the apocalypse. Strange doctrines. You get aberrant doctrines. We need to be eating Old Testament diet codes. All of us. Put your shrimp up, burn your bacon. None of that stuff. It's not going away. Or end times predictions. How many times are people going to predict when Jesus is going to come back? Keeps coming. And then you get into radical stuff like the new perspective on Paul or, or oneness theology where God is just a shapeshifter. Sometimes he needs to be the son. Sometimes he needs to be the spirit, but he's just one. He's not Trinity, three in one. See, without spiritual maturity, you're vulnerable to all that and more. Silly trends blow through the church all the time that consume us. Prayer of Jabez, Bill Gothard movement, purpose-driven life, promise keepers, seeker sensitive, the shack, on and on and on. It just blows in and sucks everybody up. Paul's illustration is of a rudderless sailboat that you had the sail up, but no rudder. What happens to that boat? It just blows wherever the wind goes because nothing is sunk into the water, pointing it in a direction. So wherever the wind changes, that's where it's gonna go. You ever been in the lake and your boat died? You're out there in the dead middle, you got nothing, you have nothing, you're hopeless. You just go wherever the current's gonna go. I can't do anything. Paul's saying we can't be that. Children do not have developed discernment with what they consume, right? How many times did you pull a dead bug out of your baby's mouth? That looks like food, I'm gonna eat that. Countless times for me, or dog food. Pull the dog food out of their mouth or they're trying to drink Windex. That's what babies do. What do toddlers do? They eat Play-Doh, eat crayons. 
And if you left it up to kids and teenagers, what would they eat? Pizza and ice cream all day long, every day. The same is true for spiritual children. We can't eat bugs and Play-Doh and ice cream. We grow up, we understand what we consume matters. Christians must be developing doctrinal discernment. Now, some of you guys may hear the word doctrinal and discernment, it just sounds bigger than, I mean, I'm not very educated, I didn't go to college or I don't know these advanced things and, and that's okay. The Bible's not saying everybody has to be a professor or a theologian. What we're talking about is a smell test. Countless times people will come to me and say, pastor, man, I was talking to this or my friend said this or somebody at work, I think it's internet. What, what, what is it? It just sounds wrong. And I'm like, actually it is wrong. Let's turn to this verse or this passage or this thing. And they're like, man, I knew it. I knew it was wrong. That's what we're talking about. You may not understand the intricacies of theology and you're not called to that. Everybody is, but you can develop a smell test. That just smells wrong. It's against what I know to be true, and I don't know exactly why, but I do know it is. Because there's an unending line of deceivers pointed right at the church. You know that word trickery in the verse? The word trickery has a, a, a gambling and hustling connotation in the original language. It's essentially that game that you always see in movies in New York City. The guy puts the cardboard box out and the pee goes under the cup and he's moving them around. He's saying, that's what's coming to you in the church and you don't know where the pee is. You don't know where the truth is because he's moving so fast, you can't see which cup it's actually under anymore. We have to be able to discern that because not only is trickery coming, but deceit. It says craftiness and deceitful scheming. So now you're moving beyond foolishness to just outright error and heresy, always coming in. How many people do you know, do I know that have been sucked into Christian cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Church of Rome? They just go all the way back to Rome. If you don't know why it's wrong, is it wrong? I mean, eventually, I mean, believe it or not, I come from the millennial generation to my great shame. I identify as a different generation, I think. Uh, but nevertheless, why is it that my generation until the one that came after us, whatever they are, Gen Z, were the worst ones we've ever had? Because nobody ever taught them anything. Nobody ever said, hey, this is why we do this. This is why we don't do this. And nobody ever sat them down and said, this is why. Either you came from uh, rote legalism, where it's like, we just don't do that because we just don't. Or it's like, well, we don't wanna be legalistic, but it's probably not cool if you don't do that. Either way, kids ended up messed up. They don't know why. We, what does the scripture say? Because eventually your barriers that are built by your tradition, whether it's legalistic style or whether it's just kind of, we're all cool about it and Jesus is our favorite style. Eventually those wear down and you don't have a reason for why. What does the scripture say? If you can't defend yourself by the word of God, you will be deceived. You will be. What did the serpent say to Eve? Did God actually say? He did not deny the existence of God. He did not deny that God had spoken. And he did not deny that God insisted that people followed what he said. He just said, what did he say? That's the lie. And that same hiss lurks for you. And the immature will be hypnotized by that hiss and the mature will not be carried away by it because they speak the truth in love and grow up 
in all aspects into him. Verse 15. See, speaking the truth in love, what's interesting that I learned about that word, speaking the truth, we actually don't have, that's actually one word in the Greek. We don't have a word for that. It's, if you translated it literally, it would just be truthing. You, that you're to be truthing in love, truth as an action. And so we put speaking in there because truthing is not a word that we have in English, but the concept is to be able to articulate the truth, to live and model the truth, to have that be functional in your life. Let, there's, there's levels to maturity. You start out with just hearing and receiving, and then you move on to meditating and contemplating, but then you get to communicating and articulating you know what you believe and why you believe it. See, Christian maturity should lead to being able to communicate the truth. Everybody's acumen and being able to communicate is different. Everybody's understanding is gonna be on a gradual growth scale. It'll be according to gifting, but we should all be able to speak the truth. If you are saved, if you are justified, if you are converted, you can communicate that. You know at least like John 9, the blind man saying, all I know is I once was blind and now I see and it's because of him. We can at least say that, right? If you know Jesus Christ, you can speak that. A mature Christian loves the truth and loves to share the truth. Consider Philip, our brother of old in Acts chapter eight, verse 35. He has a successful booming ministry in Samaria. God takes him and sends him out to this desolate area. There's one guy, an Ethiopian eunuch, sitting in a chariot, reading the Bible by himself. That seems like the opposite of a good ministry. Everybody's getting saved. He's to one guy who's already got a Bible, but he doesn't know the Bible. He says, do you know what you're reading? And he says, how could I know unless somebody tells me? And then Philip, it says in verse 35, I love this. Then Philip opened his mouth. Why would you include that? We know that speaking means your mouth is open because faith comes by hearing. You have to say something. And beginning with this scripture, the one that the man was reading, he told him the good news about Jesus. See, biblical truth is to be communicated, but it's never to be communicated without love. That's what it says in verse 15. The mature Christian doesn't separate God's love from God's truth. So you know that we have to put a caveat in here because of the day in which we live, unloving truth doesn't, unloving truth spoken doesn't nullify the truth, right? Nor does it exempt the hearer from responsibility. If you're a lifeguard and you throw the rescue tube at the person and say, grab this, you moron. Yeah, that was really rude. So then you don't drown? No, you do drown because that was the only thing that was gonna save you. But still, the lifeguard should care about the person who's drowning. The love, that, it's a mark of immaturity to sever truth from love. All love with no truth is actually not love. It's just useless sentimentality. All truth with no love isn't actually truth. It's just a lifeless orthodoxy. Why? Because Christ is truth and is love. That's what he said. And our maturity is sourced in the full knowledge of him, back to verse 13. So therefore we must be what he is, full truth, full love. We speak the truth because we love others and we want them to know it. We want them to not only know that we love them, but that there is truth and that they must know it. They will be saved in no other way. We desperately want them to come to embrace the truth instead of we desperately want them to know how smart we are we just want you to come to the truth. Jesus came because of God's love, John 3, 16, and Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, John 18, 37. John Stott said it like this. He said, thank God 
there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold revealed truth. But sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eye. I'm not gonna call it any names. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They are all love. But in order to do so, they are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of revelation. Both of these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. Truth becomes too hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. No aspect, verse 15, is to be left untouched. We're speaking the truth in love. We're growing up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. All that we are is to mature into Christ's likeness. When you feel like you've been dealing with your anger problem, then you move to lust. When you feel like, man, I've got a good working understanding of the hypostatic union of Christ, truly God, truly man, well, then you move on to divine impassibility. What is it that God has no passions? You just continue growing. We aren't willfully to leave certain aspects of our life unsanctified. Like, ah, I'm not gonna deal with that. Nah, it's just, I just got this problem and ah, it's whatever, but everything else is good. No, no, we don't sequester Christ's lordship in our hearts. He's Lord over these things, but not these things. No, we grow up in all aspects into him and our entire being is to be the living sacrifice of Romans 12 verse one, right? You put your whole self on the altar as a living sacrifice, not just one arm and one leg. All of you is on that thing. So do you have an aspect in your life that is stunted in growth, a certain sin that you hide and you entertain and you keep in private? What should you do? You go after it with a club, the club of the word and the spirit. And we're not content to let any single aspect of our being remain shriveled in spiritual immaturity. We don't let anything stay undeveloped. We are growing and we are growing directionally. What does it say at the end of verse 15? We are to grow up in all aspects into him. Our, at, our growth has a direction that we go. Imagine it like a house plant. If anybody's got house plants, wherever you put them, they always bend towards the light, don't they? We have this one big fiddle leaf fig tree in our house and we have to keep rotating it because the leaves will eventually all turn one way and face the window. They wanna be towards the light and we want it to look balanced so we keep turning it because the plant's always moving. You grow directionally towards Christ. That's the way that we bend. Our growth is not for us, nor to us, nor through us. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. All things includes our spiritual maturity that he planned beforehand. Romans eight twenty nine. for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. You conform yourself to Jesus and that's included in your predestination. And this maturity in verse 16, last verse is wrought by Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever he joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. When every member is healthy, the whole body is healthy the importance yet again of being 
in a church that has a meaningful membership understanding and in a meaningful understanding of expositional preaching, a meaningful understanding of biblical eldership. Why? Because we all need to be healthy. Each of us individually, if the whole church is to be healthy, the health of the church should be our major concern, not the numerical growth. That starts with each individual's members, each individual member's spiritual health. How are we doing? The body of Christ is pieced together by him. Each part has its own function. He pieces it, it says in verse 16, it, he fits it and holds it together. You are where you're supposed to be. You have the giftings that you're supposed to be. If you're an eye, if you're, a, if you're an eyelash, if you're a, a thread of just muscle in the hamstring, whatever it is, you're to be as healthy as you can be in that position so that the whole body is healthy and functioning as one. And when that happens, something marvelous happens. Every member plays its role, then the body moves and the body grows stronger. See, a cancer-riddled body can't grow. It can't grow strong until it gets healthy, right? You gotta get the tumors, you gotta cut them all out. The radiation has to be recovered from. The lung capacity needs to be restored. Nutrition needs to be reestablished. Then that body can get on the treadmill, then that body can go outside in the sun and sweat. Then that body can begin to build up endurance and hit the weights. After that, it's just maintenance and building muscle and enlarging endurance for that body. The same is true of the church, according to verse 16. Essentially, it's just the ordinary means of grace. When I say ordinary means of grace, what I mean is just the simplicity of life in the church, of preaching, reading, singing, praying, and seeing the word of God, of the sacraments and the ordinances of counseling and discipling and evangelizing and fellowshipping. We do those things. We do them biblically. We grow healthy. And what causes the growth? What does it say in verse 15? Back in verse 15, he is the head, even Christ. See, the head decides what to eat. The head decides when to go to the gym. The head decides what muscles do what things. So he is how we grow. It's true for individuals, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. It's true for the whole church at large, Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church, Jesus says. So therefore we focus on the depth and Jesus focuses on the breadth. We are gonna go deep with the people in our church and then let him bring who he brings and let him grow us as he grows us. We can't make it grow, but we can till the soil and water and fertilize. So we think in these lines, how do we contribute to our church growing healthier? What can I do to make our church be healthier? How do we function in our gifting under the leadership of elders? Or how do we disciple the saved and evangelize the lost? just that. And start with the kids in your own house first. Those are our concerns and our prayers, not how do we get more people in the door or how do we increase giving and revenue or how do we build our platform, get our name out there? Do we need to buy a billboard? We don't concern ourselves with that stuff because Christ builds his church. And what does it say at the very end? For the building up of itself in love. We don't miss that last prepositional phrase of the paragraph, 
Love is the lifeblood of Christ's church. He does all of this in love. And then we are participating in that as well. So we are contributing in love to the health of the church. It's because Jesus loves us that he builds us up. To engage in the love of Christ means we engage in spiritual maturity. Sometimes we don't think along those lines, but think about it like this, to exempt yourself from spiritual maturity or being in the process of spiritually maturing is to exempt yourself from the love of Christ. If you don't wanna grow, then you're saying, I don't wanna know more of Christ's love. I'm content with whatever it is I started with. That's like a body part willfully wrapping a tourniquet around itself and saying, I don't want any more blood. What happens to that body part eventually? It dies and falls off. So who doesn't want a more profound experience of Christ's love for them? Everybody wants that. Well, then the answer is grow up, mature, advance in the Christian faith and you will know that love more deeply. And you're asking, how do we grow up? Well, you gotta come back next week because we're out of time. (laughs) That's what we're gonna talk about next week. The Christians walk in 17 through 32. We're gonna look at just a few verses next week, but that's how we grow. We engage. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that you have given us here. We thank you that you speak plainly to us. We, it's a miracle that you, can, that you do speak to us at all because you are infinite and you are far above and you condensed yourself and all truth down to something that we can carry around everything that we would need to know, everything that matters and is essential for us to know about you, you've condensed down to a single volume. And and you spoke to us in a way that we can understand in two languages centuries ago that you knew and ordained would be imminently translatable for the rest of time. Lord God, your, your grace and your mercy and condescending, stooping down to us and, and in a sense, like Calvin says, speaking baby talk to us just so that we can understand who you are. That's you bending. That's you exerting towards us who were doing nothing but joyfully sinning against you and despising your name. Lord, thank you for coming into our hearts and wrecking them with the gospel and claiming them as your own and making them new by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, granting us faith in Christ that we might now see, that we might see the truth and be set free by the truth. And Lord, may we be grateful children who do press on into maturity. May we be entirely dissatisfied with our spiritual maturity. Lord, we know you call us to contentment with our uh, circumstances, with our plot in life, with our, all of the things that are uh, decided by you and outside of our uh, control or effort. But Lord, may we be uh, righteously not satisfied, discontent with our status of spiritual maturity. May we always be hungry for more hungry to get rid of more sin in our hearts, hungry to attain more righteousness like Christ.
to be more holy because you are holy and you told us to be so. And we'd be hungry for that, to be more like Christ and less like our sinful selves and certainly less like the, the fallen, lost and dead world around us. But may we do so in love. We aren't content with just us knowing the truth and pressing on to maturity, that we would long to see others, that we would, we would be scheduling baptism services because people just keep coming to Christ. May we long for that and, and plead with you to save souls around us. We know we can't manipulate that. We know we can't bring it about no matter how much charm and how big our smile is. We can't do that. You do that. You make the dry bones come alive. And so may we just be faithful to, to speak like Ezekiel in chapter 37, over that valley of dry bones, just speak the truth in love and long for you to make them alive. Lord, we are grateful for the church, the local church. We're grateful for all that you have given us. We're grateful for brothers and sisters. We're grateful for a gathering of people from different backgrounds, different countries, different ethnicities, different genders, socioeconomic levels. Lord, we, we're thankful for our brothers and sisters that round us out, that are like sandpaper on our rough edges. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ to sin against and to ask forgiveness and to be sinned against and to grant forgiveness. Lord, thank you for that. And thank you for all the children in our church. Lord, would you be so merciful to save each one of their souls by repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would bring us back together again safely next week. We look forward to every new gathering and assembling of your people. It's a gift from you, and we know it comes to us from Christ, and it is through Christ that we pray, amen.